Uh, if you could turn your Bibles to Matthew 5, we're, we're going through the Beatitudes, these blessings, these promises that Christ is giving. And as Daryl mentioned, it, it would not be a good thing to think of these promises as just islands unto themselves, you know, just standalone things that, okay, you've got the poor in spirit over here, you've got the mourners over here. No, th- this is really... Christ is talking, he is preaching, and he's giving this message to one group of people. These promises are to one group, and it's to the, it, it points to the character, the life of a Christian. And so we're going to read, our, our focus today is on Matthew 5, 4, but if you all would stand, I'm going to read what we read previously from last week as well, to show this connection, to show that this is a chain that Christ is preaching. So seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came around him. Picture the disciples in a circle around Christ, and then you have the multitudes beyond that. And Jesus opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So we all experience mourning and sorrow, and it is a part of the, the human experience. It is a part of being human. There are so many ways to grieve and to mourn. One of, the, uh, one of my, my grieving moments that came to mind was actually, uh, it, it, you know, it, it had to do with loneliness and the heartache you experience, all that, that gnawing heartache when you're, um, when you're in the dating process or, or about to be and, and you think something has gone wrong uh, with the person you're, you're growing to love. When I met, um, when I met April, uh, I didn't know she was the girl for me. And after about five minutes of being around her, I was like, I have got to marry this girl. So I was determined to marry her. So we began to, um, we, we were, began to converse long distance over Facebook. That was back in the days when Facebook was cool. And uh, we sent private messages. These were private messages back and forth. Some, some might not know of what privacy is, but we, we, we sent private messages. It wasn't uh, the public board or anything. And the messages started getting longer and longer. And I was, I was getting very happy with the way things were going. And all of a sudden, one day, it stopped. Cold turkey, everything went silent. Um, and I, you know, I'm thinking, what? What have I done? What have I said? Why didn't she message me? What's going on? And so, you know, of course, I begin to read through the messages previously, and I'm thinking, what did I say? You know, what stupid thing have I done? And the next day, I still hadn't heard from her, and I was to be in a buddy's wedding. Now, when you go to a wedding and you're lonely, it is a miserable place to be. And I'm in the wedding, and I ruined all his wedding photos, and I did not care. I was miserable. I was out looking this way, and everybody was looking that way. I, I, it, was, it was absolutely a miserable time, and it went throughout the entire day. And the loneliness set in, and I was mourning 
over what I thought was going to be my loss when my phone rang. And I ran outside, and of course it was April who told me, uh, that little lady, that she uh, w- was, had gone to a church retreat and that they had absolutely no cell phone coverage the whole time and that, you know, everything was great. And I told her, I said, this is the last wedding. I was bold at this point. I said, this is the last wedding where you're not going to be on my arm. And the next one was our wedding. God <laughs> ah, answered that prayer. But this, this loneliness, this, this agony was, was intense. And there is many, many sorrows. And the grief and the mourning is great, especially when there is a permanence attached to it. And, of course, I'm referring to the death of a loved one that we hold so dear. This is now a permanence that comes with that. And it causes our hearts to well up with such sorrow, such mourning. And and we can mourn with those in our midst even now. We relate to it. We we understand what what it's like to lose someone. We can relate to the Muslim father in Syria who is screaming out mourning over the loss of their child. We can relate to this. This is a human experience. And our hearts break and, and we understand something to be true, that what, we're, what we see is that death is so unnatural. This is not the way it is supposed to be. Blessing, mourning, and comfort, they don't seem to go together. And yet Jesus takes mourning and he puts it in between blessing on one side and comfort on the other. Jesus is saying, you're going to be fully satisfied when you mourn, and you shall be comforted. Who is Jesus talking to in this passage? Will everyone who mourns be comforted with the comfort he is talking about? Is this just self-help therapy for the masses? No. No, this, this is the promise to those who are poor in spirit and to those who recognize and understand mankind's greatest problem. As human beings, what is our biggest problem? What would you say? Is it, um, is it ISIS? That seems to be a big threat these days. We, we seem to be devoting a whole lot of time to them, and for good reason. They're, they're extremely wicked. But is it ISIS? Is it Obamacare? Is it our jobs? Is it death itself? No, the, the biggest problem that we face, the biggest problem as human beings we face, as John Piper says, the problem of the universe is this that I have no hope of drawing near to God without being consumed because I am a sinner. And unless there is some sort of priest who can wrap me round with all that he is and take me into the center of this fire, then there is no hope for me at all. 
The righteous wrath of God is mankind's biggest problem. And the chain of the Beatitudes begins with blessed are the poor in spirit for a reason. When we recognize our total depravity, when we recognize our utter bankruptcy to save ourselves, when we realize that we have nothing to bring to the table, no ability to save ourselves, we run to the only one who can save us from our sins, Jesus Christ. And it doesn't stop there. Because we who are poor in spirit recognize that our righteousness is like filthy rags and that in my flesh dwells no good thing. And, And then we look to the cross and to the sacrifice that had to be paid. I mean, we must think about this. We are saying that the God of the universe sent his only begotten son down to live amongst his creation that this God who could snuff us out in a nanosecond of time and wipe out all memory of our existence from the angels and beings around him and, and be done with us. He could be done with us and he could be righteous. And he sends his son to be crucified and pour out all that righteous wrath, our biggest problem. He pours it out on his own son for his children. And yet we still sin. We still sin every day. And the ingratitude we show our Lord when we do so. And we see the sin all around us and in us and what Christ did for us. And out of our hearts comes a great sorrow. Oh, wretched man, for that I am. Oh, wretched man, that I am. And this leads us to mourn. Brothers and sisters, we are to mourn over our sin and what it has wrought. This leads us to what the Apostle Paul calls godly grief. And out of godly grief springs something. It's not a vacuum of grief and mourning. Out of godly grief springs something. It says in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. Get this, without regret. And then he contrasts it and he says, whereas worldly grief produces death. Death. Do you see the contrast? On one side, you have godly grief which produces repentance, leads to salvation without regret. On the the other side, you have a worldly grief that just ends in death. All mourning is not equal. So I'd like us to look at, briefly, a few things that godly mourning is not. Number one, godly mourning is not despair. And we see this type of mourning so clearly in Judas. Now Judas, he had the confession thing down after he betrayed Christ. He came and he said, I am a sinner. And you can picture him taking the money and just throwing it down and saying, take your money back. I, I am, you know, and, and just the agony and he's running out 
in agony, like, what have I done? What have I done? But in this despair, there is absolutely no hope, and repentance is nowhere on his radar. He is mourning without any hope. And what does he run to? He runs to the only thing he thinks that can put it all to an end, his own death. And he hangs himself. There is no comfort for him. He mourned without hope. He mourned in despair. Number two, what godly mourning is not, is it's not, or godly mourning produces repentance. It does not produce just regret. And I think we're used to this in our culture because we, we all know of, of a, a famous person, typically a politician, sometimes a preacher, who gets caught in an act that they are, they are ashamed of. And they come before the cameras and, of course, they say, I regret this. And what basically they're doing is... is is saying, I regret being caught, and I regret that you know about this, and this bugs me. I'm going to go hire a consultant. In five years, you won't, you'll forget about this, and you'll elect me to Congress or something like that. And we see this type of uh, mourning in, in Saul, when, when Saul is so, you can just see, the guy is just tormented and instead of running to Jesus and running to true repentance, what does he do? He, he basically says, okay, I sinned. My, my, I've, I've transgressed against the commandment of the Lord. Now honor me. Honor me. This is, this is too much. I want to be honored. And regret is different than repentance. Saul then runs to a witch doctor rather than to God. Saul was in mourning. He was miserable. He was in worldly mourning. Godly mourning is not, number three, the result of sinful longing. This one, this one's pernicious. When we long for sin so greatly that we are in mourning for it. A very clear picture of this is a very troubling story in the Bible when David's son, Abnon, lusts after his sister. And it, the Bible says that he was so tormented in mourning that he made himself sick. And he ended up violating her and hating her. And two years later, he was murdered. He was mourning because he wanted sin. He wanted something that was against God and, and he was literally mourning over it because he thought that sin would give him pleasure, that he thought that, that in that sin was, was really the answer to how he was going to be happy in life. And so what happens? He, he ends up getting what he wants and he hates it because there's no happiness in it. Number four, godly mourning does not lead to self-pity. And by the way, these are all blending together. I mean, it's not one or the other. These, these, we all, uh, worldly mourning all exhibits some of these things. Godly mourning does not lead to self-pity, self-seeking, self-justifying behavior. This one is convicting. Remember Adam and Eve, after they had fallen into sin, 
Eve, uh, it was the snake. It was the snake justifying, right? Adam, it was the wife. It was the wife. You gave, God, you gave me her. We see this also in the gloomy faces of those fasting, wanting to be praised. Look at me, look at me, what I'm doing. I, I'm, not, I'm mourning, I'm really mourning. I'm really having a tough time here. Would you please shower me with attention and praise? You know, when I think back to my 32 years of life, I, I see a lot of times when I was mourning over things, I was just simply in worldly grief. Mourning over a job, turning it into anger. Why, why am I in this job? God, why am I in this job? And so what, what, is, what is stewing, what is brewing, it does not lead to comfort that God is talking about. But there is another way. There is a way that leads to blessing, and it is godly grief. What are the traits of godly grief? Number one, godly grief recognizes sin for what it is and who is responsible. G.K. Chesterton, I'm sure you've all heard this, he, he got a, a correspondence from a newspaper that said, G.K., what's wrong with the world today? And he said, he wrote back, Dear sir, I am yours. G.K. He knew what was wrong with the world. He knew that it was inside of him. And when we see sin for what it truly is, and we see who is responsible, we come poor in spirit to mourn godly tears. David, after committing adultery and murder, and then trying to hide it and cover it up, and you just could see him getting more and deeper and deeper into his sin, and he was trying to, you know, call him back, call the, the husband back to cover up his adultery, and it just wasn't working. And finally, he comes to the end of it all, and he says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, God, you only have I sinned, and I have done what is evil. It is evil in your sight. And Lord, you may be justified in your words and blameless. Comedians joke. They say, really? Really? All it was was an apple. That doesn't seem so bad. Are you kidding me? What was God thinking? They have no idea the infinite holiness and righteousness of our God. And that in that bite, what Adam and Eve were saying is, we don't care what you say. We want to be God. And that any trace of sin to an infinitely holy, righteous, and perfectly good God will lead to catastrophic results. And those who are laughing are laughing at the very thing that's causing their mortality. And a Christian whose eyes are open to their sin will mourn over it. And this mourning will lead to a changed heart. It will lead to repentance. There is no justifying of sin, no saying how small it is. No, it is evil. And godly grief, number two, it understands that there is a time to mourn for sin. And there's a time to mourn over what sin has wrought. James 4.9 says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We don't like this. The, 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 the church in America today is busy entertaining itself in a lot of ways. 
Where is the humor? Where is the, where's the next joke, pastor? Are you telling me that my laughter is to be turned to mourning? That's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom because we as Christians understand the consequences of our sin. We understand that every day we get up and we have this battle within us. The flesh and the spirit warring against each other. We need to understand that mourning over sin is a part of Christian sanctification and growth. We start to understand more and more the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. And this is the pattern in the Christian life until we die. It's one of the reasons heaven is so wonderful to think about. Because in heaven, every desire that Ladlesh has will be righteous and good and without the slightest tinge of regret or guilt for a thousand years and all of eternity. Every one of us who are in Christ, who are heaven-bound, will be able to make, will be able to seek all their desires because every one of them will be good and right. There will be no regret. That is wonderful to think about. Godly grief brings you to God. Don't run from God like Jonah did. It got him vomited up on some beach. Don't, don't, godly grief brings you to God. We think of the prodigal son. He ran to the father. When you are mourning over your sin and you're mourning over what, what is happening in your life, don't run away from the very one who can comfort you. Run to God. Don't, don't put your Bible up on the shelf and say, oh, what, what, what can this do at a time of mourning? No, no, this is a time to run to God not to a hangman's rope like Judas did, but like Peter did, who, who denied Christ in, in a similar fashion, in a sense that, that Judas did, denying him three times. He ran to Jesus, and Jesus was there. Godly grief produces repentance. Godly grief does not procrastinate. This one hits home. I, I have procrastinated a lot in my life over mourning over my sin. It's, it's a lie we believe that we have all the time in the world. I mean, I don't get it that much more anymore, but back when I was y'all's age, I, I would get, oh, you have all the time in the world. No, you don't. You have no idea what's going to happen. This life is over in a, in a vaporous second, it's over. We don't know what's going to happen. And, and so we, don't, we, we are not called to procrastinate. Hebrews 3.12 says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't be hardened. Your heart is either being softened or it's being hardened. Don't procrastinate. Psalms 119.60 says, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. For failure to do so, you at best are robbing yourself 
of inexpressible joy in communion with the Lord, and at worst, your life could be at stake. We must turn to Christ today and mourn tears of sorrow and repent. For without Christ, there is no comfort. So finally, in closing, we get to the end. We get to these words. They will be comforted. And only in Scripture can you end on this. Only in Scripture can you discuss mourning. And then there's comfort that we need to talk about. That I'm commanded to talk about. Comfort. In Christ, we are comforted knowing that if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. John 8, 36. In Christ, we have freedom from the bondage of sin, and after mourning and confessing and repenting, we can have a clear conscience before the Lord. We have the promise of an imperishable inheritance stored up in heaven that awaits us and an eternity of regret-free desires to be had. We have the Holy Spirit who brings to mind the things that our Father has said. He uses Scripture and he, he brings it right to our heart. That's why we must never close the Bible during a time of mourning. We must meditate on this day and night because that's that the words of the Lord are what the Holy Spirit will bring to mind. But possibly the sweetest comfort from God has got to be the words forgiven. Christians, we are forgiven. For as far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. Psalm 103.12 What was read today, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Micah 7.19 God says to those who are in Christ, I will forgive your iniquity and I will remember your sins no more. Jeremiah 31.34 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. The Heidelberg Catechism sums this up beautifully when it asks the question, what is your only, only comfort in life and death? Think about this for a minute. I've got the answer right here. I feel like I've got some knowledge. uh, Just wait for a minute. The only comfort... This is what it says. The only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on, here and now, for eternity to live for him. True comfort isn't found in loving your job 
or having a fat 401k account or having Donald Trump or Barack Obama in the White House or going to an all-inclusive trip to Antigua or in alcohol or in marijuana or having tons of stuff or being a minimalist and having no stuff. Sounds pretty good, actually. No, in the end, you can have all the world give me Jesus because that is everything. Being fully satisfied in the Lord is the greatest blessing we could ever receive. And don't you think that the God who eliminated your greatest problem with his blood who has removed your transgressions as far as the east is from the west, don't you think he is there for you when you mourn the death of a loved one or when you cry out in loneliness and afflictions and persecution? Would the prodigal son's father who took him in after all the sins he had committed against him not weep with his son during a time of mourning? Yes, 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 he is there to comfort you, abide with you, and love you now and for all eternity to come. Let's pray.